come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. Suddenly sound came on. Their men, <coughs> rattles you, doesn't it? All of a sudden to have the sound work. We thought it was on before. It wasn't. Okay. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And we saw last time that though this has primary application to unbelievers who reject both general revelation, that is the non-revelation that God gives of his existence through the universe, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament demonstrates or shows forth his handiwork. Uh, as well as Romans 19.1, that uh, through the creation, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, that man has no excuse that every human being, whether they admit it or accept it or not, no matter how vociferously they pound the pulpit for atheism, secularism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, whatever it might be, they know, they have the witness from the authority of God, the non-verbal testimony of his existence, as well as the clear special revelation, both in terms of the written word of God, the 66 books we call the scriptures, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, as well as the special revelation of the living word, Jesus Christ. This is the light that has come into the world, and the light has an aspect to it of revelation. It reveals sin. It communicates to man his sinfulness, his creatureliness, his need for a relationship to God, and it immediately demands a decision from everyone. And that demand results in one of two responses, either negative volition or positive volition. And what we see here in verse 20 is that everyone who does evil hates the light. That's the person who is negative. At the point of God consciousness, they do not come to the light. They reject it. They're antagonistic to it, and they oppose it. On the other hand, those who practice the truth, that is, those who are positive to God at God consciousness, they come to the light for exposure. Now, there's also a level of application that I pointed out last week to the believer. There are too many believers who respond like the unbeliever in verse 20. They do not want to come to the light. They do not want to come to Bible class. They do not want to dedicate themselves or commit themselves to what it takes to renovate the life. And I like what what was done in the bulletin this morning. Now that I have my glasses on, maybe I can read it. I was aware. I don't have even have a copy of today's bulletin, but it's there. And you need to pay attention to what was written there. Uh, Someone came up last week and said, "How would you feel?" about a contractor whom you had hired to completely renovate and refurbish your house if they came in for one hour a week. How would you respond to that after several months? Yeah, that's right. You would fire them. And yet most Christians think that they can accomplish the task of renovating their thinking by coming to the light for one hour on Sunday morning. Most churches... They don't even get a whole hour of Bible study. They get a 20-minute sermonette. And sermonettes produce Christianettes. 
and you can't get very far. I remember the story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I love the story, of J. Vernon McGee. Now, I don't know if you know who J. Vernon McGee was, but he was just an old, crusty guy from a small town called Waxahachie in North Texas, about 50 miles south of Dallas. And he was well known as pastor of the Church of the Open Door, one of the largest Bible churches in Southern California for many, many years and had a radio ministry called Through the Bible. And he's just, he never held back. He always told it exactly like it was. And he had his doctrine squared away from the very beginning. But one time back in the early 70s, Dr. McGee was invited to come to Dallas Seminary to address the student body in chapel. So he came, they flew him out from Southern California, and he's going to be the speaker on, uh, in chapel. Just before chapel began, he was informed that he would have 20 minutes to teach the Word of God in the chapel. So as usual in our chapel presentations, the uh, chaplain, Dr. Sumi, would stand up and he would give a brief uh, announcement or two and then we would stand up and he had a beautiful voice and he loved singing and he would many times tell the stories behind the hymns and he would then lead us in one or two verses of one of his favorite hymns and then turn it over to Dr. McGee and, and Sumi was one of these orators, more of a preacher orator than a teacher and I'll never forget uh, what that was like sitting under him in, in chapel because he did tell wonderful stories. He didn't have a lot of doctrine, but he told wonderful stories. But McGee got up that day in chapel, and he said, Well, men, because back in those days, Dallas Seminary was still squared away, and they were not allowing women into seminary because they still held to the position that the purpose of seminary is to train men for the pastoral ministry and not to train leaders for Christian ministry. And uh, that's another story. And so he said, he said, man, I've been told I only have 20 minutes to teach you from the Word of God this morning. Well, you can't say anything significant about the Word of God in 20 minutes, so let's bow our heads and close in prayer. <laughs> and the sad thing is that in most pulpits, 99% of the pulpits in this country, they think that if you go beyond 20 minutes, then you're just challenging people too much. They won't listen. They can't concentrate. See, they're dumbing down Christianity. They're dumbing down the churches. And they're absolutely destroying the spiritual lives of millions of believers in this country because they do not have a vision for what it takes to teach the Word of God and to prepare people the nourishment it takes for their spiritual lives in order to renovate their thinking. It can't happen in an hour on Sunday morning. It demands more than that. And we saw that the principle here was that the believer needs to come continually to the light in order that he may have his life renovated. Now, the reason I have belabored the point of light is because John, the apostle, in his writing of this, as he is wont to do, gives us an event... And then he expounds on it. Usually he gives an example. For example, at the end of chapter 2, he makes the statement about Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem at the Passover. In verse 23, he says, During the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man for himself, knew 
what was in man. And then we get an example of Nicodemus, this kind of man that Jesus will not entrust himself to, who's a believer who's not really committed to the Lord. Nicodemus, I, I, I think, became a believer at this point, but he doesn't commit himself. He's like many believers who don't understand that there, there is a commitment beyond salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation, but it has to do with the spiritual life, that you must at some point in your spiritual life, if you're ever going to be successful in your spiritual life, you have to realize that this has got to be the number one priority in your life or you will never get anywhere. That you have to learn the scriptures. You have to learn to think as Christ thinks if you're going to go anywhere in the spiritual life. So John then comes to that point. He gives us the example of Nicodemus in the same way he gives us the principle about light and darkness. And then he gives us an example. We have a twofold witness of light in these next verses, verses 22 down through 36. He talks about the twofold or the two witnesses of light, and we see the rejection by darkness in verses 22 through 30. Uh, and then, in beginning in verse 31, he focuses on his second witness in the gospel. His second witness in the gospel. Remember the reason John wrote this gospel. But these, that is, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So his purpose is to tell the unbeliever how to become saved, how to have eternal life. By doing that, he is going to marshal certain evidence. It's a courtroom scene. He is going to begin to call witnesses, witnesses to take the stand and to give their evidence about Jesus Christ. And we have gone through uh, at the beginning when we introduced our study that there are going to be several witnesses in the gospel. The first witness was John the Baptist. And here, starting in verse 31, we're going to focus on the testimony of the second witness, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, there's a principle, a biblical principle of jurisprudence that goes back to the Old Testament Mosaic Law, that everything must be confirmed by two witnesses. So here we're going to have our second witness. The first witness being John the Baptist, the second being Jesus Christ, that confirms it. But John is going to marshal seven different distinct witnesses in the Gospel in order to demonstrate his point that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. So at the beginning here we're going to see in verses 22 through 23 that there are two parallel ministries related to light. In going on in Israel at this time. There is Jesus who is the light. Back in John chapter 1 in the prologue, we are told that Jesus was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Later on, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the true light. And John the Baptist, we are told back in John chapter 1, he was not the light but that came that he might bear witness to the light. So you see that these themes that were introduced in the prologue, in the introduction, the first chapter, are developed systematically as we progress through the gospel. So we have the two witnesses to the light, the light himself, Jesus, in verse 22, and the witness to the light, John the Baptist, in verse 23. Let me read the passage. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So here we see the movement and the ministry of the light. 
you should notice that there is a progression taking place in the gospel. Put a map of Israel up on the overhead. He begins, the ministry of the light begins here in Jerusalem. Right here where I'm indicating on the map. In Jerusalem, in the center, at least the theological center of Jerusalem in the temple. That's the presentation we saw John give in John chapter 2 when Jesus walks into the temple and he throws out the money changers. He purifies the temple and has his first confrontation with the religious leaders and his, it is obvious by his acts of cleansing the temple that he is claiming to be the Messiah. He is fulfilling prophecy and we saw that when we studied the second chapter of John. He was rejected. So he moves out into the city and has ministry in the city where he performs many miracles. But what's the result? There is negative volition. That's the comment of verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. There is a rejection of Christ as Messiah by the citizens of Jerusalem. And now he's going to move out. He's seeking positive volition. Rejection at the temple, rejection in Jerusalem, and now he proceeds to the region of Judea. Judea is the province here, the southern part of what was of Israel, the land that had originally been controlled by, by Judah. So this is in the province or the region of Judea. After these things, Jesus and his disciples, these would be the six that he's picked up so far. Remember, this is very early in the ministry of Jesus. The other gospels speak of the cleansing of the temple, a cleansing of the temple that takes place just before his arrest and crucifixion. There are two temple cleansings. One that takes place at the beginning of his ministry, one that takes place at the end of his ministry. John speaks about the one that takes place at the beginning because so many liberal theologians start off with an assumption that, that there are contradictions in the Bible. It's not accurate. They misidentify this and so they have a lot of problems in the way they handle uh, the chronology and the gospel of John and you need to be aware of that because there are times when you I, I looked at an atlas this week trying to find a good map of Judea and in the Macmillan Bible atlas it has little notes on the pages as things that happen and it was so confusing because their assumption was that this first cleansing in John is the second cleansing in the other gospels you see, liberal theology permeates just about anything. You ever watch these shows on television about solving Bible mysteries or something like that? You need to be aware that the underlying assumptions governing many of those shows are the assumptions of liberal Protestant theology and not the assumptions of people who believe the Bible to be the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And that's going to color much of what they say and how they interpret the evidence. So this takes place. Jesus is rejected at the temple. He's rejected in Jerusalem. And he moves out into Judea looking for positive volition. And he is doing the same thing, conducting his, the same ministry as John the Baptist, announcing the kingdom. His message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And those who uh, come to him are being baptized. The second half of verse 22 says, And there he was spending Time with them, that is his disciples, these six. He hasn't formally called them yet. He doesn't have the twelve with him yet. This is, remember, his, this is at the very beginning of the first year of ministry. This is probably uh, April to May, uh, early May 
of his first year of ministry. There he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, it sounds there as if it's the Lord who is doing the baptizing. But if we look down in chapter 4, verse 2, we have a little note there of clarification. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So he recognizes the delegation of authority and responsibility. This is something that, that is recognized in the Scripture, that the purpose of, the, uh, of Jesus was to teach and the disciples carried out the administrative function. That is further developed in Acts chapter 6 when we see that the apostles recognized that it was their task to teach the Word and to pray and they needed men who would take care of administration in the same way in a local church. It's the pastor's job to teach the Word of God and it is the task of the deacons to carry out the administrative function in the church and it is the work of all believers to carry out the ministry. It is the pastor's job because he's gifted in the realm of teaching in order to spend the majority of his time studying and teaching the Word so that he can provide the spiritual nourishment by which people in the congregation can learn and grow. And it is the responsibility of those who are so gifted to do other functions such as hospital visitation, administration, service, whatever it may be. Everybody has a spiritual gift or more and should utilize them for the benefit of the entire body. So we see that even Jesus practiced this division of task and delegation of responsibility. Jesus, in his function as the light, is proclaiming the message of truth and teaching and baptizing. At the same time, verse 23, we find that the one who testifies of the light, John the Baptist, is also carrying out a similar ministry. Now, Jesus is down here in the land of Judea, and John the Baptist, we're not sure exactly where this is located, but it is on the west, usually assumed to be on the western side of the Jordan, up here just a few miles, eight or ten miles south of the Sea of Galilee. So they're operating in different areas. It is one complementary ministry. John and Jesus are seeing as linked together, preaching the same message with the same baptism to Israel, calling the nation to repentance in preparation for the Messianic kingdom. Thousands of people apparently are flocking to hear their message. More are beginning to go to Jesus at this time then John the Baptist and the religious leaders are in a panic. They're in a panic because they see that if this trend continues, that there is going to be a mass defection from Judaism to the ranks of John the Baptist and Jesus. And so they are going to do something about it. They have The darkness has to turn out the light. Verse 24 is simply a simple chronological note. These little things are so important to us because they tell us that the writer of Scripture is who he claims to be, that this is not someone or a document written by someone in the 2nd century or 3rd century who's just writing down church tradition about Jesus for us. That's, that is what the liberals say, that, that these books uh, were not written when they were claimed to be written or by whom they claimed to be written, but they were the products of a well-established church 100 or 150 years later. John puts in this little chronological note in verse 24. For John, as John the Baptist, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now that happened very early. In fact, in a study of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we discover is that John the Baptist is not thrown in, is thrown into prison before Jesus makes his move north into Galilee. 
So this is a little chronological note which lets us know that we're very, very early in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's a parenthesis. So in order to get the flow of thought, we'll just skip verse 24 and read 23 and 25 together. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, which is up north near Galilee, because there was much water there, and the Greek indicates that there were springs there. This is flowing water, which is consistent with the Old Testament law that water that was used in purification or for ceremonial cleansing had to be moving or rushing water. The idea there being living water as opposed to stagnant water, which would symbolize or represent death. It had to be living water. So the the text says it's waters, and the Greek indicates that these are springs. There were several springs there, and there is an area of seven springs up in this general vicinity, about eight or nine miles south of the Sea of Galilee. There was much water there, and they, that is, Jews, were coming and were being baptized. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Okay, this Jew is a Pharisee. We learned that in verse 26. He is a, um, because of what he is saying, this is a Jew, and he's going to raise some contentions about this washing, this ceremonial purification or baptism that John is um, conducting there, and he's going to make a, uh, try to create a division in this new movement, this Jesus-slash-John movement, the movement of light that is taking place here, the message of the truth. He is going to try to create dissension in the ranks, divide and conquer strategy to destroy the effectiveness of this particular ministry. So there arose a discussion, an argument, on the part of John's disciples with a Jew who's challenging them. Now, is your baptism more significant than Jesus? What's the difference between you and Jesus? Is his better than yours? Is yours better than his? What exactly are you trying to accomplish with this baptism? And he begins to theologically wrangle with them over the method and the means of baptism. Now, hasn't that happened a few times in church history? People don't understand baptism. Baptism is a ritual that is designed to symbolize something. It is to take place after salvation. It is not a part of salvation. There are seven different baptisms or eight different baptisms in the Scripture. And we have studied those eight different baptisms in the past. There is uh, the baptism of John the Baptist. There's the baptism of Jesus, which was unique. There's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And there is believer's baptism. There's also the baptism of Noah and, and the flood waters. And there's the baptism with Moses. But this is talking here. The baptism of John is also, just as believer's baptism, was to symbolize something after salvation had taken place. In Matthew chapter 3, when the Pharisees came out, to see John the Baptist to find out what was going on, he sent him back and said, first produce fruit that is in keeping with repentance. In other words, first make sure you're saved, then come out to be baptized. It's not the other way around. Baptism literally means to dip, plunge, or immerse. Has to do, it's always by immersion. It was not sprinkling, but it was always a consequence. It was always to symbolize or represent something that had taken place in the spiritual realm. What happens at salvation, the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. There is a cleansing from sin, complete and total. Forgiveness is applied at that point. 
We are, uh, redemption price was paid at the cross, but forgiveness is not applied until the moment we're saved. That is represented symbolically in the act of baptism. It doesn't save. It doesn't communicate grace. It doesn't do anything. It's just a visible representation of what took place at the moment of salvation. When a person is immersed in the water, that is symbolic of our being identified with the person of Jesus Christ in his death. When they come out of the water, that is our identification with Jesus Christ in his resurrection to new life. It is merely symbolic. Uh, Paul did not baptize, or at one point Paul said he was glad that he hardly ever baptized because this is such a problem for so many people who have created uh, so many arguments about baptism. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It is simply a sign of what has taken place in the spiritual realm because of your salvation. So they, the Pharisee starts a little conflict going, or tries to start a conflict going, and his disciples don't quite know how to handle it, so in verse 26, they come to John to try to uh, shed some light on the whole subject of of uh, baptism and what's going on with Jesus and are they in competition are they in conflict just what's going on so uh, the Pharisee looks like he's making a, little, a few inroads and the, his, they that is John's disciples come to John and say to him Rabbi he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness that brings it reminds us that the first witness in the gospel is John the Baptist to whom you have borne witness behold he is baptizing and all are coming to him. He's got, he's got a bigger congregation, Lord. John, John, your congregation is shrinking and his congregation is increasing. Shouldn't we be jealous here? Shouldn't we be uh, upset? Uh, that's always the temptation. You see that with pastors at pastors' conferences. How many people do you have in your church? You know, they always get into some kind of a contest. And, and all of that is really irrelevant because, as we're going to learn here, what matters is how God blesses. It is irrelevant to the value of any particular individual, how large his congregation is or how small. It is understanding your place, your role within the plan of God, and living within that. So they come to John and they ask him a question, what's going on here? Is there a competition here? Why don't we do something to uh, uh, increase our numbers? And John demonstrates his grace orientation and his authority orientation to the plan of God, which is the basis for all true humility in the way he answers this. Remember, this is the principle. Authority orientation to the plan of God is fundamental to true humility. If you do not have authority orientation to the plan of God, you will never have humility and you will never really have grace orientation. And you will always be operating on a principle of works. Look at John's answer. He states the principle, first of all, in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. God controls human history. Jesus Christ controls human history. Success or failure is in the hands of God, not in the volition of mankind. Here we see what true humility and meekness is all about. True humility is not being a doormat, not being walked over, but it's recognizing your role and your position in the plan of God and being comfortable with that 
and living in light of that role and responsibility. One application of that for women is that when they are commanded in Scripture to submit to their husband, so often they get the idea, well, that just means I need to be a doormat and let him walk all over me. Well, let's apply this. Doctrinal, a little doctrinal orientation here to the principle of humility. Humility means that you recognize your role and place in the plan of God. You're comfortable with it and you operate within that role. When you operate outside of that role, that is arrogance. That does not mean that you are a doormat. Would you say that Moses was a doormat? Now think about Moses a minute before you answer that question. Think about who Moses was. Moses was uh, raised in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt. He had incredible wealth. He perhaps had the best education of any, available to anyone in that era of history. And then God has to truly humble him. And he spends 40 years in the backside of the desert where he learns authority orientation to God as well as a lot of doctrine. And then God brings him out of the wilderness to lead these two to four million Jews who gripe and complain all the way. He leads them out of their bondage in Egypt. He has to organize them. He has to, well, first of all, he has to go to Pharaoh and confront Pharaoh ten times before Pharaoh finally releases the Jews. Then he has to lead them through all that for 40 years. This takes a man who has tremendous courage, tremendous authority, tremendous power, who is very comfortable with who he is, recognizes who he is in the plan of God, and can lead people and make decisions when everybody is against him. He's going to make the decisions and go forward. He's going to be tough. He's going to be strong. And yet, what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says about Moses, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now, if you're going to understand what the Bible says about humility, you don't start with modern human viewpoint conceptions about humility. Modern human viewpoint conceptions about humility are comparable to being a weak, weak, spineless wimp. You wouldn't apply that to Moses. If you're going to ever understand humility, you have to look at the life of Moses. You have to look at the life of men like Daniel, men like John the Baptist and Barnabas. Think about John the Baptist and Barnabas. They were two men who were elevated to a high position at one time, and then within the plan of God, they're demoted. They are moved to a much lower position in terms of world prestige or fame. And yet they accept that because that's God's plan and purpose for their life. So true humility is based on authority orientation to the plan of God. And that means you understand that success and promotion come from God. You see, there's too many pastors out there who are trying to build churches and build ministries. And you can build huge churches and huge ministries on human viewpoint systems and human viewpoint techniques of salesmanship. But that's not what the Bible is all about. The Bible says, they who labor, they labor in vain who build a house unless the Lord builds it. That's the principle. God supplies the hearers. I would rather have a church of 20 or 30 people who are positive to the word and wanted to grow than a church of 400 or 500 with only 20 or 30 people who are positive and ready to grow. Because all those others are just going to create problems. And the issue is not numbers. The issue is quality, not quantity. The issue is having people who are ready to go forward, to learn the word, 
that's the key. That's what the church is all about. It is a classroom for instructing and training believers to live the spiritual life so that they can go out and live their lives in a way that glorifies God. And then when you're ready, when you're prepared, God will promote you in His time, in His way. Psalm 75.5 says, Do not lift up your horn. That means do not express your own power. Do not pat yourself on the back. Do not advertise your success. Do not lift up your own horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exultation. This means it's not your job to promote yourself. It's not your job to make sure people know what you're doing and what your achievements are. It's your job to do your job, whatever it is, in whatever realm it's in, whether it's as a housewife, a homemaker, uh, whether it's on the job, whether it's as a parent, as a father, or as a mother, whatever it may be, whatever, wherever God has placed you, your task is to do it to the glory of God, to the best of your ability, under the authority of God, and it's up to God to promote you. And God will promote you when you are ready. Many people become overzealous, they become overambitious, and they try to advance themselves. And many times they do, but they advance themselves into levels of pressure that they just can't handle and that end up destroying them. God always uses prepared people. One of the things you'll notice, as you become prepared, and as your attitude is to be willing to be used by God in whatever opportunity comes along, then as you learn the Word and you learn the Gospel and you come to understand how to present the gospel, God's going to suddenly start giving you opportunity after opportunity to give the gospel to unbelievers. And he will open those doors. You don't have to go out and start trying to uh, learn all these techniques like evangelism explosion and all these other things where you go out and use a, an Amway marketing uh, technique in order to try to build the church. That if you, if everybody would uh, win one person to the Lord or get two people saved in the next two months, and every one of those people would then get two more people saved in the next two months, and then each one of those, then within about five years, everybody in the world will be saved. <laughs> That's how many churches are operating today, and they're out there using salesmanship techniques in order to try to build the kingdom of God. And while a lot of people may be saved in the process, and that is good, the end never justifies the means, and all of that work is going to end up being wood, hay, and stubble as far as their spiritual life is concerned. Now, the converts are clearly going to be in heaven. But all of that witnessing is all done in the power of the flesh, and it doesn't count for anything as far as spiritual life is concerned. Psalm 75, 7 says, But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. This is the attitude that John the Baptist has. It has been his time to be the witness to the light. But now that the light of the world has come, he is to fade into the background and it is the role of the light to take center stage. This is what he says in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Role recognition. He reminds them of what he said when the group of Pharisees came out to investigate to see if he claimed to be the Messiah. And we saw that in the first chapter that he rejected it. He said, I am not the Christ, 
but I've been sent before him. He understood who he was and what his role was, and he was comfortable with that. Authority orientation is necessary for true humility. And then in verse 29, he gives an illustration from the culture of that day. Now, this is an illustration that is going to shock a few people. The Jewish culture, as I read about some of their ceremonies and some of their the way they conducted themselves, especially in the marriage ceremony, is a little too earthy for a lot of modern Christians. We just get a little too squeamish, especially about the issue of sex. So if this is a problem, you better just sort of relax a little bit, you know, get a grip on your poker face as we look at the real meaning of this illustration. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now that is a euphemism. That is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. What would take place, and we find this, I think, almost a little coarse, what would take place in a Jewish wedding ceremony is that for many years, the bride and the groom, mom and dad, chose who they would marry. And that marriage contract was established years before they would be married. And then they would enter into the formal betrothal stage, and then they would come to the wedding, and the bride would be brought to the groom, and they would go through the legal ceremony. We covered all of that when we discussed the wedding in John chapter 2. And then they would go to the uh, to an upper room, which was where the marriage bed was, in order to consummate. And this is all part, all the guests are outside. They don't just act like we do in our culture, and everybody leaves and goes home, and they go off on their honeymoon. No, while everybody's there, they go upstairs to consummate you. That's all part of the entire procedure. And then they have to present evidence that the bride was indeed a virgin in keeping with the marriage contract. Now, the interesting thing here, a little cultural note, to give you confidence that this is the word of God and that it is written by who, the person who, who was an eyewitness to all of this. When we studied the wedding in Cana, the wedding in Cana took place up north. It takes place up in Galilee. And Galilee at this time had different customs. We never hear mention in John 2 of the friend of the groom. They didn't have a friend of the groom. Friend of the groom was still operational in the early first century in Judea. Because of abuses, it faded out of practice by the end of the first century. So it's clear that the writer of Scripture here is familiar with customs, marriage customs, unique to Judea in the early part of the first century. What would happen is that the friend of the groom would go upstairs with the bride and groom, and he would stand outside. And when the, bride, when the groom, and groom and the bride would go in to consummate the marriage, when he found, discovered evidence that she was indeed a virgin and the marriage was consummated, and he gave his shout of exultation, then the bridegroom outside would give his shout of exultation. It's been consummated. Everything's over with. Uh, and, it, and he rejoiced at the joy of the groom who has just consummated the marriage. That's the background for this. That's what's going on. So John uses this comparison because in the Old Testament you all, and the New Testament, you have this analogy of marriage and God's relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the groom. Israel is referred to as the bride of Yahweh. So John 
uses this illustration. He who has the bride, that is, he who consummates the wedding, the marriage, is the bridegroom. Who's that? That is Jesus Christ. Over here. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the groom who consummates. What has he just said? Doctrine of the deity of Christ. Very subtle, isn't it? He just slips it right past you in this analogy. He is making an affirmation that Jesus Christ is analogous to Yahweh. He is the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, that would be John the Baptist, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He doesn't give in to jealousy. He doesn't give in to any other mental attitude sins. He is purely rejoicing in the pleasure and joy and the happiness of the groom. He takes no thought for himself, his own position. He's completely in the background. All of the joy, all of the honor, everything belongs to the groom. Therefore, conclusion, he must increase, but I must decrease. True authority orientation. This is one of the greatest passages in all of the scripture about what true humility is all about. Recognizing who you are in the plan and purpose of God. And being willing to take promotion as well as demotion. If your view of the spiritual life and of God's blessing for you isn't large enough to include the fact that God will take everything away from you, take all your material possessions away from you, uh, reduce you to poverty, then you don't have a view of the grace of God that is biblically accurate. Because God's blessing is not defined in terms of material possessions or numerical strength. God's blessings are related spiritually so that however God blesses us, whatever His plan for us is in terms of material possessions and prosperity, we can handle that. Whether that includes a lot or a a little. Professors of mine at Dallas Seminary used to say, warn us that if your theology isn't broad enough to include the idea that you're going to leave here and minister in a church of five people for the rest of your life with all this tremendous education, then your theology is pretty poor. And how many people in our success, number-oriented culture try to apply those values and those criteria to the local church. And the result is we come away and we say, if it's a small group, if it's a small church, then they must be doing something wrong. Because if they were doing it right, God would bless them and their numbers would increase. But you don't find that in Scripture. John the Baptist is doing exactly what God wants him to do, and he's being demoted. It happens to Barnabas later on. It happens time and time again in Scripture. In fact, what we'll see in our study of the Gospel of John is that Jesus, of course, did everything right. How many are left with him before he goes to the cross? Not very many. See, that's true humility. True humility can incorporate either tremendous uh, numbers or no numbers. Great material prosperity or no prosperity. Because it's up to God to give the increase. Sometimes God's plan is for us to increase, sometimes to decrease. 
But true humility recognizes our position in the plan and purpose of God, and we accept that. We say, yes, sir, to God. We have authority orientation, and we move forward. That's what true humility is all about. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at this example this morning of how light divides, of the witness of the light and the witness to the light, and how as the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus continued and began to bear fruit, the jealousy of the darkness and the attempt to divide the darkness, and how that was thwarted, the threat, the temptation to mental attitude sins, to jealousy, to competitiveness, to arrogance, was thwarted through John the Baptist's use of humility, grace orientation to solve the problem. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take the opportunity to accept the free gift that you have provided at the cross of Jesus Christ as their Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is by faith in Christ. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you saved us. And all that we need to do is say, Father, I accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, now as we go throughout our week, we pray that we could remember the doctrine that we have learned today. That God the Holy Spirit would bring it to our memory and we would respond positively to apply it when those opportunities present themselves. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.